You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. So I've called this talk uh, Money, Who is in Control? Now money is something which every single person in this room at some point or another has to deal with. In fact, it's probably impossible to go a day without dealing with money in some shape or form. Our culture is surrounded by different views of what money or the way we should handle money in our lives. I thought I'd just share some of them as uh, touch points as we begin uh, this look at money. Um, This is a picture of um, P. Diddy, otherwise known as Puff Daddy at this point in his career. Um, This is from the song Mo Money, Mo Problems. I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. That's as close to a rap as you'll ever get from me in a sermon. And here, basically, what Puff Daddy is saying is, before I was famous and didn't have money, I didn't have problems. But now I've got money, I've got problems, because people keep asking me for money and I've got to deal with it. Very insightful. Here's um, a picture of Donald Trump, very topical. This is his quote. That's one of the nice things. I mean, part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. So if I need 600 million... I can go and get it. I can give it to myself. That's a huge advantage. I must tell you, that's a huge advantage over the other candidate. What Donald is saying here is effectively, money gives me control. Not over my own life, but over the life of others. Here's um, probably the, the most famous capitalist, it's a fictional capitalist, Gordon Greco from the film uh, Wall Street. You see that building? I bought that building 10 years ago. My first real estate deal. Sold it two years later, made $800,000 profit. It was better than sex. At the time, I thought that was all the money in the world. Now, it's just a day's pay. Here, Greco is describing the elation of earning money, the high of earning that kind of money. And finally, his modern counterpart, Jordan Belfort, played here by Leonardo DiCaprio in the uh, Wolf of Wall Street. If I earn a million dollars a week and the average American earns a thousand dollars a week, then when I spend twenty thousand dollars on something, it's the equivalent of an average American spending twenty dollars on something, right? Now here's, he's, he's picked up on something that's cultural. The rich give more to um, society, they pay more tax and they pay more percentage of what they earn, but maybe applying it in a more selfish way. Here's Mark Zuckerberg. We give 99%, or we will give 99% of our Facebook shares, currently about 45 billion, during our lives to advance this mission. We know this is a small contribution compared to all the resources and talents of those already working on things and issues, but we want to do all that we can working alongside many others. In case you weren't aware, Mark Zuckerberg is the richest under 40 uh, in America. He has pledged to give away 99% of his wealth during his life and uh, to advance issues such as medical care and, and other things like that. As Londoners, we are particularly fond of talking about money. Be that whether it's the cost of living or how much our next annual bonus will be whether we've been hit by the London tax. For those who don't know, that's the overzealous uh, parking wardens who uh, love to put uh, parking charges on our cars. Um, Or maybe just the disbelief in how much our homes are cost to buy or how much they're worth. Uh, Living where we are just brings with it significant financial challenges. 
I've got a friend who lives up north somewhere and loves to text me links to Rightmove of houses, mansions, palatial mansions of six bedrooms for the cost that I pay for a one-bedroom flat in Brentford. He blesses me in that. He really does. And as the financial capital of the UK, some would say the world, London certainly has money on its mind. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Jesus also seemed to have money on his mind. In fact, if we were to accurately represent the amount of times that Jesus speaks on money, every third sermon here at Redeemer would be about money. Now, in case this is your first time or you've recently been coming to Redeemer, don't worry, that isn't the, uh, the regularity that we do preach on money, but from time to time we do, and this is one of those mornings. Nevertheless, we want to talk about money. During the week, we asked uh, some of you to submit your questions on Facebook that you'd like us to hit during this morning about money. Uh, Thank you for those that submitted questions. Uh, I'm glad that we can work through all of those. And this brings us to our first question. Why did Jesus spend so much time talking about money-related issues? Well, I believe it's deeper than just wanting to talk about money. See, Jesus wants a relationship with us more than anything and everything else. Before you start thinking, oh great, Jesus wants a relationship with me, therefore I can spend my money however I want, you may want to think again. And here's the reason why. Money is deeply relational. In fact, money is more relational than we ever might give it credit for. Let me give you an example. If you were to invest in gold and the gold price went up, How do you think emotionally you'd feel? Pretty good. If the price went down, not so good. What we invest in controls our hearts. Where you put your money automatically directs the leaning of your heart. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew 6, 21. Where you put your treasure, that's where your heart is going to be. So let me ask you a question. Where is your treasure right now? Because if you think about it, the answer to that question will show you where your heart is. And the Bible is littered with warnings that, give, that if we give too much of our hearts to money, it will dilute and ultimately negatively impact our relationship with God. The Old Testament is full of stories of people who get too comfortable and they use money and their faith suffers as a result. Matthew 6.24 says, you cannot serve both God and money. Not that it's difficult, it's impossible. You can't serve two masters. So Jesus is after our hearts, but there's a little battle going on inside of it. This tug of war between money and God. And Jesus knows it, and that's why he gives so much time to talking about money. I first realized this little tug of war when I was 18 years old. Um, Me and my friends from school, as we were finishing our A-levels, were planning our first holiday away together. This would have been, for most of us, our first holiday away without our parents to celebrate. We knew that we were going off to different parts of the country, to university and to work. This was our last time together. And so we planned our holiday, and it came in at a price of £300. It was a little cheaper back then. (laughs) Um, The problem was, our church was doing a gift day, and... I felt God say to me, you know that 300 quid you saved up? I want it. And it was the hardest thing in my heart because 
I wanted to go on holiday with my friends, but I felt God took me this way. As an 18-year-old, I'm proud that I'd, I made the decision to put that money in the pot. And that was really my first biggest ever like, financial decision between giving to God and spending it on myself that I made. I put the money in the pot. It was cash as well, because at that point I didn't have credit cards or checkbook. Um, that week, in the mail, I got a check for 300 pounds from my insurance company. Now, I'm not telling you that story to say that it always works like that. It does not. Believe me, it does not. But I believe God was teaching me a lesson early on in my life that if you trust me and you do things my way, I will look after you. It will be the greatest adventure you ever go on. And that has been the trajectory of my life ever since. And I love trusting God with my money. Is money trying to elbow out God in your life? It can be a strong master. The good news is Jesus is a better friend than money could ever be. And that is the relationship on offer for each of us. So this morning, I'd like to look at one of the moments that Jesus decided to talk about money in front of his disciples. In fact, it was the last time he talked about money and arguably the most significant for many reasons, which I'll come on to. We're going to look at the story of the widow's offering. This is in two books of the Bible. It's in Mark and in Luke, and it's almost word for word identical. Today, we're going to read from Mark 12, 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury, this is Jesus, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So here's the deal. The scene is taking place between Palm Sunday, which we celebrated a few weeks ago in the church calendar, and Easter Sunday. Jesus has arrived into Jerusalem. He's got his mind on what ultimately he's going to do in a few days' time on the cross. And he's decided to go to the temple, which is the center of Jewish culture and commerce. And um, that's where the sacrifices were brought. And he sat there, people watching. It's the last time he'll ever go to the temple. And then this scene unfolds in front of him. He sees one by one rich people bringing in um, large gifts and pouring them into the offering box. And then this widow enters. And she walks up and there's the tiniest clink as that penny, those two pennies, lepti in the Greek, which was the smallest coin in existence at that time, drops into the box. And Jesus sees it and she gets it. And he turns to his disciples and starts to explain. Though the amount of her gift was the smallest, the sacrifice was the greatest He goes so far to say, she gave out of her poverty, she put in everything. She put in everything that she had to live on. In the original Greek text, the word is bios, which means whole being. So a more accurate way of describing this is she put her whole being into the offering box. This widow gave her whole life away. What is Jesus saying? And why did he pick this moment 
to point at the story. Well, when the rich give, okay, to be honest, when we give, because if you're sat in this room today, you're automatically in the top 5% richest people in the world. Whether you've got nothing in your bank, you're already in the top 5% because of the education and the health service and just the living in this country puts you in that bracket. Well, when we give, we give out of our margin. What do I mean? Well, when the gift is done, are we eating any less as a result? Are we dressing any differently? Are we traveling any less? No. We don't so much that it would actually give that it cuts into our lives. We just give the money. But she didn't. Jesus said that when this widow put in her last discretionary cash, she was putting, or she was doing what she, um, she was taking food out of her mouth. And even more than that, she was giving up what little control she had over her life. When the rest of us give, we only give what we can afford to give without losing any control over anything. We're still able, mostly, to do everything that we want to do. Our problem is a fear of the heart. It's a big obstacle in giving our lives fully to Jesus to say to him, you are now in the driving seat. You are now in control. It's not what we don't like to trust with our minds. It's just it's very hard to hand over control. We say we can't follow Jesus, but actually what we mean is we won't follow Jesus. Whether you're secular or religious, it's the same problem. People who rely on religion don't want to give up control either. They seek to control God by doing the right things so that they can then say back to God, hey, I'm a good person, you should bless me. That's not giving control over to God. The secular person says, I will live my life my own way. There's no absolute right or wrong. Everything is relative. No one has the right to tell me what to do or how to behave. I'm in control. You see, both have the same root problem. Both are scared about giving control over. They don't have what this widow has, which is a spiritual bravery and therefore love. She was trusting God and she was giving so much that she had to trust God. She was losing control of her life. She gave her life away. The reason we do not believe as we should, the reason we don't connect with God like we should, is because we are scared of losing control. And if that's the case, what are we going to do? What's the solution? How are we going to overcome that? Is there any solution? Well, yes. It all rests on who Jesus was and how he lived. You see, in the Old Testament, it's very clear to pick up God's heart for the poor. It screams off the page. He identifies with the poor. But in the New Testament, we see God become the poor. He was born into a poor family. He didn't really have possessions. At one point, he, he talks about foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man does not even have a bed to lie in. He was homeless. We can't say that God doesn't understand what it's like to not have money. Only Christianity of all the religions paints God in this way. It's completely topsy-turvy. He lost control. Jesus lost control for us. And then we see that the widow is actually a picture of Jesus. 
And that's why a few days before what Jesus is going to do, he's saying, look at the widow. Do you get what I'm about to do? I'm about to pour my whole self into the bucket for you. I will lose myself so that you gain yourself. On the cross, he who deserved justice got condemnation. That you who deserved condemnation might get God's justice. Jesus paid your penalty so that you could be saved by faith. He gave his life. He was devoured. He lost control for you. When you understand that, why wouldn't you want to trust him with your life completely? Jesus is saying, trust me, lose control of your life, give it to me. And when we gaze at the wonder of the cross, giving Jesus giving his life away, it melts our hearts and gives us the power to fully trust him and to give control of our lives over to him completely. And that includes control of our finances. You see, if you get this one simple point, and the sermon, it's only got one point today, but it's probably the biggest point you'll ever hear. Jesus wants you to give him your whole life. And if you do that, it puts him in control. And then it impacts everything. It impacts where you choose to live, what job to do, who you marry, what you do with your money, all the big decisions in life. Because rather than I know best, or I'm going to do these things because I know it will earn favor with you, like the secular religions do, it's I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to do it your way, Jesus, and brings control of things under him. Now, in a couple of weeks' time, we've got our annual gift day here at Redeemer. This is an opportunity for us to give above and beyond our regular giving, to demonstrate complete trust in Jesus over our finances. It's meant to be hard next month, if you didn't get it. You're not really meant to save up all year so you can just casually put in what you decided a year ago. It's meant to hurt. It's meant to cost you. That's, that's not why we do it, but that's why God loves us to give to him. Because it's the ultimate, I trust you. I remember last year, uh, me and Shelley were um, at this point praying about what we were going to give. And at that point in our lives, we, um, Shelley had uh, recently gone on maternity. And um, we, we hadn't got money coming in from a salary there. And I'm in business and my income goes up and down all the time depending on how the previous months had gone. And we hadn't had a good few months. And we're coming up to the gift day. And we'd got a small amount of money which had come in. And it was about how much it costs to run our house for a month in terms of mortgage and food and, and all the other bills that you need. And as we prayed, we felt God say, I want the lot. More money than the 300 quid. Can we do 300 quid again? That was going well. (laughs) And on top of that, we knew we weren't even here on gift day Sunday. So, to be honest, we thought we could probably get away with it. (laughs) Nevertheless, we felt God stir us. And we put the whole lot in. Which put us in a problem. Because we had no money for the month. And... Unless you're wondering, this doesn't end with a, an envelope of money coming through the front door. I wish all stories did. In the end, we, I had to borrow some money to get through the month. But the blessing wasn't financial. The blessing was the depth of relationship that I built with Jesus as a result of that decision. The adventure that he took me on by saying, you know what, I trust you. Have it all. I know you've got me. And we're fine. We're, we're here today. we we did manage to pay our mortgage and book food on the table. God always does provide. It might not just be in the way that you're hoping he will. 
So I can honestly say that my relationship with Jesus has changed as a result of going on an adventure in terms of money with God. And that's the adventure that God invites you to, to trust him with money and our very lives so that he might save us. So let's look at another question that you asked this week. Is it wrong to spend money on yourself needlessly? Great question. I think we can sometimes struggle with the feeling of almost feeling guilty about spending money on ourselves. That's probably a good thing. Remember, we're now living in a time of grace, so there's no longer any condemnation over how we spend money. We need to be careful about striving to define things too tightly, but rather tuning into what God is speaking to us at at any point. The principle is instead, when Jesus is in the driving seat of our lives, we've given him control over our money, then we can tune into what he wants us to spend money on. And it all comes down to really your definition of needlessness. I prefer to maybe define this as without purpose, which I suggest is a more helpful way of framing this question. Does God want me to be housed, clothed, fed? Of course, the answer is yes. Does God want me to take a holiday in the Maldives? Well, that's a bit more of a tricky question to navigate. I'm afraid the answer is going to be yes and no for a different one of us in the room, depending on how you're perceiving God's purpose for you for your life. We need to tune in to what God's purpose is for us and make a decision based on that. How you spend money aligns with the purpose that he has for you, then you'll be making the right decision. God seems to be pro-investing money in the Bible rather than just needlessly spending it. Think of the parable of the tenants. Those that took risks and invested were commended by God compared to the one that just buried it in the ground out of fear of losing the money. God wants you to use all of the resource he's given you to invest in the advance of his kingdom, to live by faith rather than rest in the security of assets or savings. I'm not saying that savings are wrong. I'm not saying that assets are wrong. But if your trust is in them rather than God, then your heart's not right. However, just for the record, I do believe in a reckless quality to how God calls us to spend money on others. When it comes to blessing others, I believe we should be lavish with our money, which brings us nicely to the next question. How much should we spend on ourselves versus spending on others? Of course, there's no definitive answer to this question. There's no percentage or defined amount that I can give you. I guess the general answer to probably all of us in the room is we should probably be spending a bit less on ourselves and a bit more on others than we currently are. It's a wonderful thing to bless one another. We read in Acts how the early church was working this out. This is Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we came... Upon every soul, and many wondrous and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, the proceeds to all, as they had need. 
and day by day attending the temple together, breaking of bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think we've got a great deal to learn about how we can support one another within the church. These verses are a great challenge to us. You see, we, we're within an individualistic culture. And we struggle with thinking community before ourselves. And that's just how we've been raised. Everything screams, think of yourself first. You see, the challenge for us is we're within that culture. So my suggestion would be for us to all start taking some risks in this area. Uh, one, one way could be that maybe carry some cash in your wallet. And the next time you see someone that you want to bless, slip a tenner in their notebook, just, just secretly, just because it's fun. It's fun to give and bless people. Maybe take someone out for a meal, take them for a coffee, bless them with a holiday to the Maldives, if anyone wants to say it. <laughs> Have fun with it. And let's be aware of people within our own family who might be struggling and not make a big deal of it. You know what? Send them some cash with an envelope through their door and let's love one another in this way. I think we've got loads to learn on that. It's just scratching the top of the iceberg. I remember um, after prayer and fasting, uh, I think last year at some point, um, we went for a meal. Um, a whole load of us went for a meal at a Persian restaurant. And at the end of the evening, uh, John and Yvette Flower just turned to us. It's on us. We've paid the bill. And I thought, you know, you're not millionaires as far as I know, but you've chosen to just bless the whole table. That's a wonderful attitude. I encourage you, pick the bill up more and be lavish to one another. There is no limit to being reckless and needless with your money when it comes to blessing each other. Question, how can we learn to be more content with what we have? Well, this is especially hard because money, because it gives us a little kick when we get something, we can perceive it as happiness. And it's a self-fulfilling thing. The more that we buy, the more that we have in our lives, then the more happy we feel. That's the mistake we make. But deep down, we know that's not really true. If we're all honest, we, we know that money doesn't lead to happiness. In fact, the latest research says that um, a deep, meaningful relationship in your life is worth about £70,000 a year. So rather than pursuing money... I would suggest pursue deep, meaningful relationships, both with one another and with God. And then you've got, you don't need the money or the happiness in the world. If you build up friends and invest in relationships, that's how you become content. If you follow the path of money, it's not going to lead that way. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Invest in relationships rather than material things. Question, how much should I give and should I only give to Redeemer? Well, the tithe that um, we sometimes refer to from the Old Testament, it's mentioned in Malachi 3 and Proverbs 3 and many other places, um, is about giving 10% of our income to, um, to God. In the Old Testament, that was 10% to the temple, the work of the temple. So if I get £100, I would give the first £10 to the work at the temple. 
And generally, that's a good rule of thumb for us as a church. It's not a law, and it's not an um, absolute command from God to give exactly 10%. And if you approach it that way, again, I'd say, look at your heart first. It needs to be, you're in control, Jesus. What do you want me to give first? But 10% is a good rule of thumb in terms of giving to the work of the church. Things like this hall being hired and the staff um, events that we put on are all for one purpose, and that's to reach this borough for Jesus. And I say there's no better place to invest your money than reaching this borough for Jesus. So I encourage you, think about giving 10% to the church, this church, and you'll see how that adventure with God will take you incredible places. Now, I recognize that we're all at different stages in our journey to trusting Jesus with our money, particularly when it comes to giving. Some of us may have been giving 10% for as long as we can remember. For others, the thought of giving 10% is an enormous mountain to climb. It seems impossible. I could never do that. So I want to suggest a little giving challenge for us all here today. Why not? And it's just a suggestion. Over the next three months, increase your giving by just 1%. If you're yet to give, try giving 1% of your income over the next three months and see what God will do. If you're giving 4%, give 5%. If you're giving 10%, the good news is there's no ceiling on how much you can give. Try giving 11 This is just an adventure that we can go on together and see what God does. That 1% might hurt. It's meant to. It's meant to be a sacrifice to show I need you, Jesus, to come through for me rather than I'm in my comfort zone. Now, what about giving to outside of Redeemer? Well, again, I believe the principles of the tithe could be a good guide here. God actually commanded the Israelites in the Old Testament to give three tithes. The first tithe, which we've just talked about, is called the sacred tithe, and that went to the temple treasury and that's what Jesus in this story was observing. The second tithe is called the feast tithe and it's another 10% of all of the income of Israelites went to the feast tithe. This feast tithe was effectively for a big party to enjoy and celebrate the goodness of God. The third tithe was a tithe to the poor which they took every three years and it was another 10%. So actually the total percentage of a, a, an income for an Israelite would be 23 and a third would go to God, not 10%. So if you're sitting there thinking, I've given my 10%, I tick the box. Well, I'm afraid the standard is much higher. And it's, it's, you know what? In the New Testament, it's even higher than that. So um, don't sit there uh, thinking um, that, that you've ticked the box. Um, my suggestion would be this, that we would give at least 10% of our income to Redeemer, to support the work of the church here. In my opinion, there's no better way to invest your money. It also seems that God wants us to give to one another and enjoy God's goodness. So not to overplay the Old Testament tithe structure, but perhaps you can consider spending a further 10% on just blessing one another and enjoying each other's companies. Maybe take someone out for a meal, pay for a coffee, take them on holiday, just enjoy one another. That to me seems to represent what the feast tithe was. And then a further command from God, an incentive for us, is to give to the poor. We can give money to some amazing organizations like Tear Fund, 
can speak to Edward if you'd like to know more about it, or donate to local projects um, where uh, we seek to, to deal with poverty in your local area. My prayer is that Redeemer is seen as a group of people who are incredibly generous in giving to the poor. Like all giving, particularly this one, I believe there's no ceiling on what you can give to the poor. So take a risk and have a go. I'd like to bring this talk to an end by telling you um, the story of probably um, Ealing's most famous resident that you've never heard of. His name was Charles Blondin. Blondin was his nickname because he had bright blonde hair and he lived about 150 years ago. Now you might have heard of Blondin if you live in Northfields. In fact, if you take the E2 bus from um, Ealing Broadway, just as you come up to the Plough Pub on the left-hand side, opposite is Blondin Park. And there's two roads leading from Blondin Park, Blondin Avenue and Niagara Avenue. Now, why Niagara, I hear you ask? Well, Blondin was a high-wire performing artist. And arguably one of his greatest um, achievements in life were walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. In June 30th, 1859, Blondin stretched a rope across Niagara Falls and walked across it. There was a big crowd, about 10,000 people turned out to watch him. He and his manager, Harry, this is, um, thought it was great. And they thought, let's promise a stunt next week and we'll do it again. So come back. So rather than just walking around, I'll do something else. The next week, the crowd was even bigger. One week, he went across with a sack on his head. One week, he bicycled across. Probably my favourite was one week he took a wheelbarrow with a small stove in it, got halfway across, cooked himself an omelette, and then brought the omelette back. Brilliant. (laughs) One time he stood on his head, another time he did somersaults. um, But in the end, he was running out of the different stunts that he could do. So they sat down and they came up with an idea, him and Harry. Blondin is going to carry a man across Niagara Falls. Now, of course, everyone was excited because this was two lives at risk rather than just one. They say 100,000 people turned out to watch. But first, they had to find someone who was willing to, to be on the back. So what they did, they put advertising in the local paper and they offered $1,000, which is an incredible amount of money at that point in time, for anyone who was willing to be on Blondin's back. $1,000 was a lot of money, so they did get some applicants. Many people actually turned out for the trial. And of course, they had to find the ones that were the right size to fit on Blondin's back. So after they whittled it down, they invited those which they thought, yep, you two, come and I'm going to prove to you how safe this will be. So they took them up to the drift, Niagara Falls, the rope. And Blondin went out and he put a sack of potatoes on his back to show that he could take the weight. And he performed some tricks in front of them. And he came back. And he said to each one, he walked down the line of, of men which turned out. And he asked this question to them. Do you believe without a doubt that I can carry you across? And one by one, they answered, absolutely. We completely believe you can do it. We have no doubts. And then one by one, he walked down the line and he said, Will you let me carry, will you let me carry you across Niagara Falls on my back? 
And one by one, they said, absolutely not. (laughs) Every one of them said, no, no one would do it. You see, it's one thing to intellectually believe. It's a completely different one when it's in your heart and you've got to actually do it. To step out and give control to someone else. So what happened is this. Since they had 100,000 people there waiting for the show, Blondin turned to Harry, his manager, and said, Harry, it's going to have to be you. (laughs) Everyone has showed up and we've got to do it. And Harry was terrified, but he agreed. Now, halfway across that day, carrying his manager, Harry was scared and he was trembling on the back of Blondin. And the rope began to sway. Harry had to work out what to do. And Blondin underneath realizes that they're in danger. And he screamed out at the top of his voice over the rushing uh, waters to Harry. Harry, until we clear this point, you've got to become me. Mind, body and soul. If I sway, you've got to rest in me completely and sway with me. Do not attempt to try and balance yourself. If you do, we shall both go down to our death. Blondin said, if you, Harry, try and save yourself, you will end up losing yourself. If you try to save yourself, we will go to our death. You know what? Jesus says exactly the same thing to you. Blondin said, if you have to rest in me and trust me, completely. Again, Jesus says exactly the same thing to us. To say, Father, because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, accept me because of what Jesus has done. I myself are flawed, but in him I'm perfect. I trust in him thoroughly and completely, and that's what it means to be a Christian. Now, Blondin, of course, could have dropped Harry. It was physically impossible. But Jesus can't drop us. You know why? If you want to stretch this analogy just a little bit further, it's because Jesus has already gone down to the depths and paid that price so that you will never have to. Jesus says this to you today, let me carry you. How are you doing with giving control over to Jesus in all areas of your life, including money? Are you willing to sway with Jesus, to trust him completely, and to follow his leanings on your life? Let's pray. Our Jesus, we are in awe of what you did to win us back. That you were to go to the very depths, to lose yourself, so that we might live. We give you the honor and glory that only you deserve. And as a result, we say, we want to sway with you. We want to tune into your voice in terms of your will for our lives. And we give you everything. We're all in. Into the offering pot, we put our lives, we put our money, we put everything. Because you have already paid the price. And so we invite you, speak to us. Help us to live in a way which is radical, a radical following of you. In your name, amen.